Uh, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. We really should make this a sword drill. It's right after hesitations. Malachi in the third chapter. And we'll read from verses 13 through 17. Now well, through 18. 13 through 18 of Malachi 3. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed, for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Martin Luther once called John 3.16 the little gospel, and some have called the book of Malachi the little Old Testament. By the time that Malachi was there, a hundred years or more had passed, since the Jews had returned to Jerusalem after their captivity in Babylon. Malachi was a reformer who had both rebuked and encouraged God's people, and the people that he addressed were perplexed. They were people with failing spirits, people whose faith in God was in danger of collapsing. They were in danger of becoming at least skeptical, if not hostile, towards Jehovah. Good thing that's only describing people in that day, right? In this book, Malachi addresses first the sins of the priest in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 9, and then the sins of the people in chapter 2 through verse 10 through 3.18, and then things to come for the rest of the book. And we could subtitle this book, Jehovah's Love Unrequited. The book begins with God's declaration I have loved you. And then they questioned that love. God's love for His people was unrequited by an ungrateful people, by profane priests, by adulterous individuals, by those who doubt God's punitive righteousness, by those who rob God of His tithe, and by those who doubt His many promises. And God is critical of those people on many fronts but mainly on the issue of sloppy worship. And that was manifested in many ways. They were giving God leftovers in their worship. William Perkins, one of the earliest of the Puritans, in fact, some have called him the father of Puritanism, said that that is the great issue that God has with people as we keep giving Him leftovers. He says, we give the devil our youth and our strength and we give God our old age and our weak bones. Not only were they giving sloppy leftovers, they were giving Him diseased sacrifices. 
Instead of the unblemished and the spotless lamb, they were giving him sick and dying sacrifices. And God asked them, would anybody else accept this from you? They were robbing God of their financial obligations, and God confronted them on many of these failings. But then in the midst of this passage, He takes a different turn with them in verses 16 through 18, and He compares a remnant who feared the Lord with the behavior of those who were sloppy, irreverent, disrespectful, and negligent. Let's read again just verses 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. Verse 16 tells us of a certain group of people within that much larger group of those considered to be the people of God. They are described this way. They are those who feared the Lord. And they are further defined in the second part of the verse as those who fear the Lord and who meditate on His name. Now that translation is somewhat suspect, the older translations render it this way, those who fear the Lord and who esteem His name. And that would seem to be more in line with what it means to fear the Lord. The Hebrew word can also be translated to think or to meditate. So it's certainly justifiable to think that they meditate on His name. But it can also be correctly translated to regard highly. Those who fear the Lord esteem His name highly and that seems to make all the sense in the world because the idea of fearing the Lord is to reverence Him or to hold Him in awe. Now, if there's anything that is missing in modern versions of Christianity, it is a fear of the Lord. Mark Twain once quipped this. He says, God created man in His own image and then man returned the favor. I don't think anything more aptly describes what is going on in Christianity. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is in Psalm 50, verse 21, where God says to the wicked, You thought I was just like you. We have lost that sense of otherness that God has that makes Him holy. That He is so totally different from what we are. There are so few who know what it is to fear the Lord. But for these people who fear the Lord and who highly esteem His name, there is a book of remembrance written. And in this book, God has a reminder, if you will, regarding these people. He says concerning them, they will be Mine in the day when I make up My jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. When I was going to church camp, Years and years ago, that was a song that we sang, when He cometh, when He cometh to make up His jewels. We also sang, give me oil in my Ford, keep me pumping for the Lord, so it offset itself. <laughs> and give me umption in my gumption, let me function, function, function. And somehow there was spirituality in all of that, don't ask me how. 
What we're doing here this week seems to be much more biblical and God-honoring. But in that statement, not give me oil in my Ford, in this statement, they will be mine in the day when I make up my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. We see the people of God, the true people of God, those who fear Him and highly esteem by His name, are considered by God to be His jewels. The Hebrew construction literally means His choicest treasures. And in that statement, God declares His people to be three things. They are a possessed people, they are a precious people, and they are a protected people. Now the theme all week in these morning sessions is really what a wonderful thing it is, what a blessed thing it is, how great it is to be in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I hope we saw yesterday morning the truth that God loves His people as much as He loves Himself. And then also that God is a better Savior than we are a sinner. And today I want us to see that as His people... We are a possessed people, a precious people, and a protected people. Let's look at the first one. God's people are a possessed people. They will be mine. Isn't that the best news that anyone could hope to hear? Particularly if you were a wandering Jew who had no sense of home, who had no place to light, no place that you could call home, no sense of belonging. And it isn't even more good news in a day where we feel so alienated from everything and everyone around us. They will be Mine. Isn't that the message of the covenant? I will be their God and they will be My people. And this is exactly what Peter did in the New Testament when he called Christians a people for God's own possession. Christians belong to God. Soli Deo Gloria puts out a monthly newsletter, and I don't know if any of you get it, but uh, the article for June was the issue of ownership. And in that, I brought up the fact that it is a forgotten truth that we do not belong to ourselves. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. We keep acting like we are our own. We act like our money belongs to us. We act like our time belongs to us. We act like our bodies belong to us. But none of that is true. If we belong to God, all of us and all of our possessions, everything that we count ours is actually His, but everything that He counts His is actually ours but we live our lives as if we didn't belong to anybody and didn't owe anybody anything. Christians belong to God. It can no longer be said to them what Jesus said to the Jews, you are of your father the devil. We can't sing like Charlie Pride did years ago. You know, we're all God's children, His next of kin. Particularly when Jesus said, To most people, you are of your father the devil and you want to do his will. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. So those of us who fear the Lord and esteem his name 
are a people for God's own possession. The Lord says of us, you are mine. And with this statement, he reinforces the idea earlier stated that he has a book of remembrance about them. It is if God were saying to show them that I will never forget them, to show them that I will remember them, I will make them my own, and that way I will never forget them. And we have to be very clear on this. God never forgets anything. I have a seminar I do on forgiveness and reconciliation, and inevitably some well-meaning person will come up and say, I'm just so glad that God forgets my sin. And I said, and I, I always say to them, do you believe that God is omniscient? They say, what is that? And I said, that He knows everything. Well, yes. How could God know what He forgot? Well, well, but the Bible says your sins I will remember no more. I said, He didn't say I'd forget them. He says, I make a conscious choice not to remember them. Your sins I will remember no more. And the idea there is the same as in 1 Corinthians 13, that he love does not keep a record of wrongs done to it to bring up and use against people later. But God can't know everything and forget anything, can He? You see, we have to start with what's true and then define what else comes along by what is absolutely and imperatively true. God never forgets anything. And that is really good news, by the way. I have a favorite verse. I have many favorite verses. But one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and it's a, a verse I go back to time and time again when I, usually when I get tired after a conference, or at some time when I start playing Ain't It Awful with myself. It's Hebrews 6.10. Let me read it for you. God is not so unjust as to forget your work and labor of love which you've shown toward His name in that you minister to the saints and do minister. See, God never forgets anything you do. And He's not so unjust as to forget the work that you do for Him in ministering to the saints. I mean, what hope could there be for us if God forgot? There isn't any of us who doesn't want some recognition for what we've done. I mean, none of us is so sanctified and so self-actualized that we can do our work in a vacuum and say it doesn't matter to us if anyone notices and it doesn't matter to us if anyone ever says good job. I mean, none of us are like that. Now, we can take it too far and say, why didn't my cookies get the recognition her cookies got? And that's a little bit much. But all of us like to hear and all of us can expect to hear well done, thou good and faithful servant. And by the way, that is what we are allotted for by Jesus Christ is being faithful, not being successful. Being faithful is our job. Being successful is God's job. All we can do is be obedient. What He does with it after that is up to Him. And uh, Alan, I want to talk to you about that hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. There's no other way to be in Jesus than to trust and obey. It's not a matter of being happy. It's a matter of being saved. And once again, I ask you, we never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay. 
then you'll never prove the delights of His love because you never will lay all on the altar. That would require perfect sanctification. To me, that's an old covenant song because it puts everything on me to get it done and then God responds where the new covenant is, I do what I do for my sake and you reap the benefits. God is a wonderful laborer in that He requires effort, but never success. Well, we want someone to notice, and how much better if the someone who notices is someone who will reward us at some point, or at least acknowledge the fact that we have indeed done something good. But you know this, that in the Christian life, many times, the reward for obedience is simply obedience. The reward is that we have done what we ought to have done, and the most we can hope for is that we have been unprofitable servants. God certainly didn't need us. But in this very poignant imagery, it reminds us of Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16, where God compares His tenderness towards His people to that of a nursing mother. And He says that a nursing mother might forget her infant, But he says, I will never forget you. Now he brings up the imagery of the most poignant, loving, sensitive, tender, caring thing that we can possibly imagine. A mother who is nursing her infant. And he says this, she might forget her infant. Now I'm sure in God's day, what is not his day, in the day that Isaiah wrote that, it was absolutely unthinkable that a nursing mother would forget her infant. And the Holy Spirit inspires Isaiah to write it that way and say it might happen. But then God says this, but even if it does, I won't forget you. And then he says this, I have written your names on the palms of my hand. In fact, he says, I have inscribed them. And the word he uses is when they would take a chisel and a hammer and pound something and carve it out of a rock. He says, that's what I've done with your name. He says, well, what significance could that possibly have? God's He's disfigured himself with my name? No. For the Jews who were often prone to be away from home for long periods of time... They didn't have snapshots and they didn't have pictures and digital cameras like that terrible Lynn Sanchez who caught me in a picture this morning while I was walking looking like death warmed over. And he'll post it somewhere on a website, I'm sure. (laughs) They didn't have those types of things. And so what they would do is they would draw things that were dear to them on their arm so that they could look at it. Now, you assume if they were gone very long, it would wear off. These weren't tattoos because that was forbidden. But the further they put it down their arm, the more dear it was to them, and there's nothing further down the arm than the palm of the hand. And God says, I have put your names there. Why? Because you're that dear to me. A nursing mother might forget her infant, but I won't forget you. I've carved your name on the palms of my hand. Each individual name, and does that give you some idea of the immensity of God? Now, obviously, God doesn't have hands any more than when He says, I've sheltered you with my wings. He has wings. But the imagery is for our understanding. 
Well, that's the first thing, is that we are a possessed people. The second thing he tells us is that we are a precious people. They shall be mine on the day when I make them my jewels. Again, that means my choicest treasures. That is how God sees His people. That is how God sees those who fear Him and who highly esteem His name. We are His jewels. We are His choicest treasures. Now here is where faith comes up against experience. Because I dare say there are few, if any of us, who if someone were to ask you, how does God see you? He thinks I'm a jewel. I'm really His treasure. But does it really matter what we think about how God sees us? I mean, to us it does. But we have to come to grips with what the Word of God says about it. My daughter is not only the prettiest girl in the entire world, she also is the most precious girl in the entire world. But she doesn't always feel that way. But it doesn't matter what she feels. What matters is what I think about her. You see, her feelings about how she thinks I see her may change. But how I see her never changes. And she'll say, Dad, I'm, I'm sure you don't love me as much today because I got a D-plus on a test. And I said, what in the world would ever make you think that a D-plus could affect how much I feel about you? I said, did you do your best? No. Well, that may affect how you feel about you. And so all I care about is that you do what you can to please the Lord with the gifts God has given you. And if you're aware that you haven't done your best, then you need to do something about, you, about that. But you can't possibly think for a minute that I don't esteem you as highly because you flub-a-dubbed on a test. You see, if we think that way, we're still under Old Covenant thinking where God says, if you do this... I will be your God. That's the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is this. I will be your God, and because of that, you will do this. But it is no longer a performance-oriented relationship. God delights in His people, not because of what we are, but because of what He is and what He's making us into. They will be my jewels. As far back as Exodus 19, God is declaring how dear to His heart His people are. He says, you will be a special treasure to me. And that word is the same one translated in Malachi 3.17. And the word was used to signify a portion of wealth that a man had obtained by hard labor and by hard work. And it implies that men love more earnestly and diligently when they have it because they've given so much to obtain it. You're that way. When you work hard for something, you have a greater affinity for it than if it's just given to you. I used to volunteer my time in the summers when I was a college football coach for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And we would often have inner city kids who couldn't afford to come to camp. And so we'd have businessmen who were willing to pay their way to camp as long as they could get a tax write-off for it. 
And we did that for one summer, and then after that I decided, no, we won't ever do that again because the kids who came for free abused it and misused the privilege and acted up and eventually were sent home. They had to have some investment in it. In fact, when Vince Lombardi used to teach the Green Bay Packers about tackling, they asked him, what's the technique? He said, there is no technique. He says, you look at the man with the ball as if it's a man running down the street with everything you own, and you just think how you would stop him. You see, when something is important to you, when you've worked hard to get it, you'll treasure that more. I felt that way about my doctorate. Some of you have got things that you've earned or treasures that you've built up or things like that and you feel protective about them. And that's the word that's used here. So the more that was given to obtain it, the more dear it was. And we only have to think for a moment about what God gave to obtain us so that we might have all that He is and then we will have all we need to know about how precious we are to Him, right? How much does God love His Son? as much as He loves Himself. How much did God give so that He might have us as His people, His Son, who is the most dear thing in the world to Him next to His own glory? The more you'll give for something, the more that something is worth. Psalm 135, verse 4, The Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel for His special treasure. David says this in Psalm 16, and I have to think it is the mindset of God Himself, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, if something has all your delight, you would have to agree that you are full of delight in it, and therefore you are delightful. That is how God sees His people. He takes delight in them. Those are amazing statements, and you'd think one, it would have been more than enough to live on forever. But here that God not only tells us that we are His jewels, that we are His choicest treasures, but that He delights in us. We hear so little of this. I attended a church, a Reformed church, where you'd never know that God had the slightest bit of love for anybody. All you ever heard about was the law and the law and sin and sin and sin. And the people, you could just see the people walk out after every sermon, hunched over and their shoulders forward. What is there in this that I'm supposed to feel good about? When Christ gave His charge to Peter, it was always to feed my sheep. The literal translation of this, that is this, feed my precious Little lambs. That is the charge to every minister of the gospel, and that is the description for every minister of the gospel of how God sees the people under our charge. We are to feed His precious little lambs. They're not ours. They sit under our teaching. And they may be the flock that He has made us the under-shepherd over. But we have to always remember that these are His precious little lambs and our job is to feed them, not to peck them, not to stroke them, 
the charge is to feed the sheep. To feed them with knowledge and understanding. That is what God says in Jeremiah, that He will give them shepherds after His own heart, pastors after His own heart, who will feed them with knowledge and understanding. Not just knowledge, but knowing how to do anything with that knowledge. Knowledge and application. Isaiah 43.4, Since you were precious in my sight, therefore I have loved you. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said it this way, Christ does not find us lovely. He makes us lovely. That is what God does when He regenerates us. He puts His image into us. And He loves in us what He sees of Himself. It is the fact that He has chosen to set His love upon us that makes us precious, that gives us worth, that makes us these choice treasures. We dare not forget the proclamation of Christ, I have loved them, or I have loved you, with an everlasting love. Like the song says, He gave His life. What more could He give? What's the conclusion we should draw from that? Oh, how He loves you and me. I love that phrase that Jesus used. He says, having loved His own, He loved them to the end. If we were to put that not to the end of time, but to the end of His ability to love. Now, what is the end of the ability to love of an infinite being? If we were going to put it in the vernacular, we would put it this way. Having loved His own, He loved them to the max. And we would have to ask the same question. What is the max when you're talking about an infinite God? What more could God have said or done beyond what we've already seen? Were His jewels, His choicest treasures, His delight, His special treasures, were loved with an everlasting love? And you say, okay, words, words, words. Where's the proof? Where's the beef? Even the Rolling Stones years ago had in a song, I don't want to talk about Jesus, I want to see His face. Go to the cross to find your worth. You see, in any system of bartering, something is only worth what someone else is willing to give in return for it. I'll bet that if you have some little fuzzy material at home, like velour or something like that, and you have little peanuts or little jelly beans or something, and needle and thread, and you could make a stuffed animal out of it, you may have expended all of a quarter. But if you put the tag Beanie Baby on it, and put it on eBay, all of a sudden it could be worth up to thousands and thousands of dollars. Because there's somebody out there who will give you just about whatever you ask for for something called a Beanie Baby. If you have told me when I was 35 that I would pay $100 for a rhinoceros Beanie Baby, I would have laughed you off the planet. But then one day, a little rug rat named Michelle, who was hanging around me all the time, saw it in a store and said, you know, you're the best dad in the whole wide world. hundred bucks is nothing to hear that. And now they're sitting in the basement in Tupperware tubs. And 
when she asked me what we're going to do with them, I said, what do you mean what we're going to do with them? That's your college education. Because <laughs> we have them all. Of course, one week before she leaves for college, there'll be a deflation of everything named Beanie Baby. John asked, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And there the Scripture places the worth of the soul above the entire world. The only thing that could be offered in place of one soul was the life of the very Son of God. And what is more valuable to God than that? That's why when people say, come to Jesus, it won't cost you anything. It's an absolute lie out of hell. It costs God everything to redeem you and it will cost you everything to be redeemed. And you say, are you saying you have to work to be saved? Of course not. You could put me in a drug-induced state and you couldn't get me to say such a terrible thing. What I am saying is this. He gives you His life. It costs you your life. It's the great exchange Isaiah 55 talks about. It will cost you everything to be a Christian. It took the life of Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, God incarnate, to redeem one soul. How much is that soul worth to God? And again, please tell me, after serious contemplation of that truth alone, how any Christian could ever possibly tolerate in himself a lack of self-worth or self-esteem. Because you're saying to God, you didn't know what you were doing. I don't care what you say. I'm not worth that much. Only God Himself was enough, and to Him, you were worth it. Now that's the truth you're going to have to live according to. We published a little booklet by Joseph Alain called Precious Promises of the Gospel. And I want to read from a little bit of that booklet. Uh, Alain writes as if God Himself were speaking. Hear, O you ends of the earth, the mighty God, the Lord, has spoken. Gather my saints unto me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Behold, I establish my covenant between me and you. By my holiness I have sworn that I will ever be your covenant friend. I will lift up my hand to heaven. I swear I live forever. And because I live, you shall live also. I will be yours, yours for all intents and purposes, your refuge and your rest, your patron and your portion, your heritage and your hope, your God and your guide. While I have, you shall never want, and what I am to myself, I will be to you. You will be my people, a chosen generation, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. I call heaven and earth to witness this day that I take you for mine forever. My name shall be upon you, and you shall be pillars in the temple of your God, and shall go out no more. My clothing you shall wear, and the stamp of my own face shall you carry, and I will make you my witness in the epistles of Christ to the world. You shall be chosen vessels to bear my name before the sons of men, and that you may see that I am in earnest with you, lo, I make with you an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, and I here solemnly deliver it to you as my act and deed, sealed with sacred blood, 
and ratified with the oath of a God who cannot lie and knows no place for repentance. Here I seal to you your pardon. Though your sins are as many as the sands and as mighty as the ocean, I will drown them in the depths of my bottomless mercies. I will be merciful to your unrighteousness. I will multiply your pardon. Where your sins have abounded, my grace shall superabound. Though they be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. I declare myself satisfied and pronounce you absolved. The price is paid. Your debts are cleared. Your bonds are canceled. That's why I like these Puritans. And I keep hearing from people, how could you publish these legalistic, hateful people? And I said, what book are you reading? I don't find it. I just find that kind of encouragement. Well, let's move on to the third point. We are a protected people. God says, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Do you see the relationship here between these three components? We are God's people. Because of that, we are precious. And because of that, we are privileged, uh, protected. Do you see how nicely it all fits together? God will spare those who fear Him, who highly esteem His name, because they are His and because they are so precious to Him. And God's sparing His children in spite of our many infirmities is one of the choice privileges given to those who fear Him. That is our protection. God had spoken previously in Malachi of the judgment that was coming upon those who had broken covenant with Him. In chapter 1, verse 4, He said He would have indignation forever with some. In chapter 2, verses 2 and following, He spoke of cursing them, rebuking their descendants, and spreading refuse on their faces. How's that for gentle Jesus, meek and mild? In chapter 4, verse 1, God speaks of them as being stubble to be burned, but here He tells us that He will spare those who fear Him. In chapter 4, verse 2, But to you who fear by name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings. We're protected in being spared from such curses and rebukes, such punishments and torments. God's holy nature inclines Him to hate sin and punish those who commit it. His love for Himself demands it. The purity of His law demands that He do so, or He'd be hating Himself and denying Himself, which He can't do. And we are incapable of appearing before God because of the multitude of our sins. So if God should decide to set His love upon us to call us precious and to spare us, not for anything about us, but by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ, isn't that quite a protection? The psalmist asked in Psalm 130, If thou, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? It's a reasonable question. If God were to keep track of our sins, none of us could have a relationship with Him. That wouldn't even work in the human realm. If we were to keep track of all the wrongs we'd done to one another, we couldn't have a single friend in the world. You know, it's really one of the great things about getting old is losing your memory. Isn't it interesting the way God has made life that we start out at the bottom and then we get to the eighth grade and we're on top of the world. And then the next thing we do is start over as freshmen. And is there anything more lowly than a freshman? And then we spend four years getting to the top of the heap 
and we're seniors, and we either get a job in a mailroom somewhere or we become freshmen again. And then we spend four years getting to the top of the heap, and we think we're on top of the world, and then we get an entry-level job somewhere. And then we work our way up somewhere in the business world or ministerial world or something like that, and then we get to right around 50, and we can't remember anything. Now, I thought it was a wonderful thing that happened because I remember one day someday somebody came to me who were very upset with something I'd, I'd done, and they said, will you please tell me why you did that? And not only could I not remember why I did it, I couldn't remember what they were talking about. And I think it's great because if you can't remember it, you're not responsible for it. That, that says that in Hesitations 3.11. <laughs> I think one of the reasons that people can't actually stay married so long is they can't remember all the things that upset them 20 years ago. Or then they lose their hearing and they can't hear all the wicked things that are being said about them. I remember the last year of Dr. Gerstner's life, he'd lost his hearing for the most part. And the only way he and Edna could communicate was they had two phone lines about ten feet apart. And she would call him, he'd pick up the phone and she'd say, what do you want for dinner? And he'd, he'd put the phone down and walk over, he knew it was time to eat. They were only ten feet apart in two different chairs. Well, if you can't hear it, you can't be offended by it. There's a lot of good to be said for getting old. But here's our hope. There is forgiveness with God. That's the basis for hope, that there is forgiveness with God. And it's a privilege that comes with sonship. It's God's merciful nature that inclines him to, quote, pass by the infirmities of the saints. And Scripture tells us that he delights in loving kindness. He forgives us because of the satisfaction of Christ. And He forgives because of the covenant He's made with Himself. He put Abram to sleep because He wasn't going to leave it up to Abraham to fulfill the covenant. And so He makes the covenant with Himself. When He could swear by none greater, He swore by Himself. And so God has made a deal with Himself never to turn His back on us. We're going to look at that tomorrow. It's no violence to His covenant then which requires perfection since Christ supplies the perfection that is required, and then that is reckoned to our account, and then on top of that, as we saw yesterday, He always lives to make intercession for us. Now look at the circular nature of all this. In Psalm 130, verse 4, there is forgiveness with God that He may be feared. Now who are the recipients of all the benefits we've been looking at? Those who fear Him. So God gives us what we need, and then He rewards us for having it. You just can't find a better deal than this anywhere. This is better than a 30-day free trial. What should be our response to a God like that? To adore Him, to fear Him, and to highly esteem His name. What should we do? We should conduct ourselves as precious jewels who are a prized people, a possessed people, a precious people, and a protected people. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus Christ, once again we are amazed 
at what it means that you have called us to yourself and blessed us in the heavenlies with all the riches that God has to give upon such unworthy sinners as we are. And yet while we acknowledge that we are unworthy, we must acknowledge with loud voices that thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and blessing and power and riches and wisdom and might and that you alone are worthy. May we trust your assessment of us and live like possessed, precious, and protected people in whom is all your delight. And for this we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.